Dr. Weinstein, thank you for your time today, sir. Um, this is this is awesome. This is an amazing opportunity, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Uh, I'm glad to be here. I will just say, you know, I I hadn't heard of you, um, and when your invitation came, I looked briefly at your stuff, and it looked like you were somebody with some insight. And I always think it is important not only to go on the big podcast, but to invest in people who look like they have high potential. So in any way, in any case, it's it's good to meet you and I'm glad to be here. Oh man, that's awesome. Thank you, sir. Um it's uh yeah, I uh like I told you beforehand, I've I've been talking to people who are way out of my my league into uh, on level of intelligence and you're one of them. So I hope I don't disappoint today. But uh I, I wanted to start our conversation uh by discussing the the WHO pandemic treaty and the uh amendments to the existing regulations. Um I feel like this is an issue that is not getting enough airtime. And I think it's something that, well, I, I mean, to put it plainly, is extremely dangerous. So uh, would you mind maybe just summarizing what this treaty is, what the amendments are, and the potential consequences for the member states? Sure. I, I won't actually summarize what it is, in part because it's a moving target. They okay. keep changing it, even right down to what it's supposed to be called. And I take this to be strategic, that they are trying to make it uh, complex enough, lure us into making errors and challenging it so that we embarrass ourselves. And, and so I'm not going to step in the trap. Um, not that you're setting a trap, but I believe they are. And I will say generally what this is, if you imagine that in whatever way it began, something decided to sell us a narrative about COVID, about how dangerous the disease was, about what the proper remedies were, about what uh, treatments did not work and must not be used. And, and it would have succeeded except for the fact that we were able to poke holes in that phony narrative in public, that effectively podcast space was the mechanism by which we broke their control levers, which surprised them because whatever cabal it was owned all of the major media properties, and so it felt certain that it could sell its narrative and there'd be nobody to challenge it. Now imagine that that error was one that those that we outfoxed have now decided never to make again. And so what they are doing is rearranging the rules so that that opportunity no longer exists. And the Pandemic Preparedness Treaty isn't even just a treaty. There are two um, structural sets of changes moving through the World Health Organization. They are due to be voted on in May. If the member states uh, vote in favor of them, and this is another place where there is ambiguity, it's not even clear what that means. Does everybody have to sign on? Does, is the EU one entity or many? Um, but these two structural sets of changes, one only one of which is treaty-based, um, will alter the power of the World Health Organization. It will give them the right to declare a global public health emergency based on no criteria. They could literally declare uh, global climate change a public health emergency, and that would give them, assuming that these sets of changes pass that will give them license to declare 
the global structure of the response, literally including the ability to mandate onto the citizens of the signatory countries treatments, vaccines, Gene therapy is literally spelled out in plain language inside this treaty. It will be able to prescribe travel restrictions. Um, in other words, all of the things that they sought to accomplish without these structures in the COVID pandemic, they will have, have the power to just literally uh, issue orders and the member states will be forced to, uh, to bring their citizens into compliance. Beyond that, they will also have the ability to censor discussion globally of these things. So we will not even be able to point out what is wrong with the arguments that they are making. So imagine a, um, a wish list that Goliath has kept about rules he wish he had had access to during COVID to ensure a win. He is now um, granting himself those rights, and it is not being noticed because processes of the World Health Organization and the documents in question are so deadly boring and bureaucratic sounding that nobody can bring themselves to look into it and say, oh my God, what's afoot? This is really a kind of global tyranny that is being described, and we have no choice but to derail it. Wow. Okay. So um, I can think of three scenarios, and you can tell me if I'm right or if I'm wrong here, uh, just to kind of lay this out in plain English for people who may not understand the details. So say, for example, first scenario, um, we have a another global pandemic, and uh, the World Health Organization sanctions, let's say, a handful of medications or vaccines, mRNA vaccines. And, and there's a new mRNA vaccine that everybody has to take, a new formulation. Um, they would have the ability to, say, strike alternative medications from, from probability of use, right? So therefore, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, any medications like that, the World Health Organization would have the authority in prohibiting. Am I right there? Yes, but it goes even beyond that. Not okay. only would they have the right to dictate that, let's say, in your scenario, a new mRNA-based inoculation was mandated upon the population, and not only were you forbidden to use ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, but because of language surrounding equity in these new documents, the World Health Organization could literally decide that river blindness mandates that ivermectin be reallocated to some other part of the globe so that even if you spotted their skullduggery and decided, no, I'm going to take ivermectin instead, and you decided to endure whatever penalties were going to be inflicted on you for refusing the mRNA shot, you might not be able to access ivermectin because it's all been transferred somewhere else for some other public health reason. Wow. Um, so effectively... You remember as a child when you uh, learned about, you know, all of these myths that involve a genie popping out of a bottle and giving you three wishes, and every child knows that the first wish has to be for infinite wishes because you'd be a fool to wish for anything else. Right. Um, that's what this is. This is the World Health Organization and the um, public health tyrants granting themselves 
every power they could hope for uh, so that they can mandate whatever they want onto the world population. Yeah, man. And, and, you know, the other scenario that came to mind is one that you actually already brought up was a scenario where, and we've already seen, you know, uh, climate change be declared a, a public health crisis, racism declared as a, a public health crisis, which, you know, to, to critical thinking, rational people, that makes zero sense how that connection is made. However, it, you, you can jump through hoops and make that connection. But once that connection is made, does that that would then give the World Health Organization authoritarian power over how that crisis is managed, correct? Yeah, I'm, I'm of two minds here because I know because of what I trained for professionally that there is something to be said about the very significant difference between, let's say, individual health and population level health concerns. That's a real distinction. And there are lots of things that you can do at a public health level that you can't do from the individual level. For example, if a polluter is putting heavy metals into a water supply because they don't want to pay to process them properly, well, the individual may have to you know, the individual may have to source their water from elsewhere, and people who don't have the resources to do it may be condemned to simply take in the toxin. So that's a public health level concern, and it matters. The problem is that public health, because it allows you to override common sense with respect to the individual and individual liberties and individual rights, has become the excuse that tyrants use to explain why they are eliminating these things. This has nothing to do with public health in the end. And we have to have a conversation in which we lay out what, if any, exceptions might exist for public health overriding individual health. Right? That, you know, let's take the example of a, and mind you, I think. Almost all of us have had our understanding of even common vaccines changed as we've seen up close what was done uh, to fight COVID. But imagine that you had a vaccine that was of a standard profile, a vaccine that actually worked to prevent contraction and transmission of a disease that, that was targeted at a disease, the consequences of which were actually very serious and which had rare but significant side effects. That is to say, let's say one in 50,000 people had some serious crippling consequence from taking the thing. But the consequences of uh, insufficient uptake of the vaccine meant that the disease uh, spread through a population and injured far more. That's a situation in which everybody taking their small share of a remote risk prevents a much greater harm. Now, in that scenario, there's a question about whether or not there is any right whatsoever to mandate onto people that they take this normal vaccine. Now, I probably feel differently about this 
projects in 2023 than I did in 2018. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I would ever have been in favor of a hard mandate, and I certainly would have been in favor, were there a mandate, for a generous policy of exemptions for anyone of a number of reasons. We saw in the COVID pandemic people who had profound vulnerabilities to all sorts of environmental toxins who were forced to take them. Um, but the point is, informed consent actually is a principle above law. We literally, we, the West, literally hung seven doctors at the end of World War II for violating this principle, even though it had not yet been codified. So it is effectively sacred in our system and should remain so. And in the scenario I painted, um, presumably informed consent means uh, that you both have a right to say no to the shot and you have a right to understand what it is and what it does to the extent that we understand those, those things. So we are in a legitimate bind. There are things at the level of the population that matter health-wise in which an individual opting out isn't going to kill off the effectiveness, but many individuals can. And we have to talk about what we're supposed to do. Now, where I've arrived in 2023 is they have one tool and one tool only that is legitimate at their disposal. They can compel us that we should take it, right? Mm -hmm. They can compel us in the sense of making the argument and if the argument is compelling, we can accept it. They do not have the right to mandate these things, and we now know why, which is they absolutely cannot be trusted to tell us what they know, and they don't know nearly as much as they will represent themselves as knowing. So we have the right to say, hey, that doesn't sound like a good gamble to me because I know too much about iatrogenic harm and the damage done to people uh, under the banner of medicine. I don't know how well I've answered that question. I feel like I've meandered a little bit, but no, no, that was that was beautiful. That was perfect. Uh, um, you know, I've been um, so I talked to to Naomi Wolf uh, a few episodes ago, and she has assembled a team of over three thousand scientists, doctors, journalists, different people to go through the the Pfizer trial data, and it's over four hundred and fifty thousand pages that they are currently sifting through and uh they've been uploading what they found to their pfizer documents uh series on daily clout um now i have to preface what i'm going to say by saying this naomi wolf is a Rhodes scholar she's a best-selling author she's probably the foremost feminist of her generation right i mean she's she's not a stupid person um what she has found in these documents is a uh, almost singular focus on the human reproductive system and the effects of the mRNA technology on the human reproductive system. When you say singular focus, what do you mean? Sorry, I yeah, I I think I'm being a little too, uh, I'm, I'm being a little too, uh, yeah, a, a, a heavy amount of focus on the you human. The, the inoculations concentrate in the reproductive system, or do you mean that the those who were studying this were focused on the reproductive system? Those who were studying, sorry, thank you, Dr. Weinstein, that's why I'm talking to you today. Um, uh, those who were studying uh, the effects of the of the mRNA vaccines were, were, were focused on the human reproductive system. They were studying the effects on the human reproductive system. And um, what they found is 
nightmare fuel. I mean, things that are horrifying. Um, Pfizer knew that that their vaccine was causing miscarriages uh, during their trials. They knew that babies who were breastfeeding uh, from vaccinated mothers were were having seizures, some were dying. Um, they knew that there was some sort of um, effect that the vaccines were having on the male testes and causing them to deteriorate. Pfizer knew all of this. And I, I, I asked her very straightforward and bluntly if she felt that, that knowing what they knew, if the rollout of the vaccines, if there was, if there was something intentional in the act, and she said she believes that it that it was intentional, and that, I mean to to I mean to be blunt that this is point A in a depopulation agenda. Now I want to ask you because you're a very pragmatic, practical person. Um, you know, you were a guide for me throughout the pandemic. I listened to Dark Horse religiously. I remember when you were wearing a a bandana around your neck and being cautious and socially distancing and wearing your mask. And I watched you slowly transition and become a dissident. And I appreciate the caution and the care that you took in doing that because you understood you had a very loud voice. There were a lot of dum-dums like me out there listening to you who may misconstrue uh, certain ideas if you were to put them out without carefully explaining them. So I want to ask you, is, is, is this, is a potential depopulation agenda something you've considered and if so, what conclusions have you drawn from it? Yeah, of course I've considered it. Um, here's what I, you know, there is a toolkit one has to deploy to think about complex scenarios like this one. There's a question of what's possible, what may have happened. And then there's a rain, there's a realm of what is there evidence for? I would say, and then you set a floor of what you believe. The best answer that still remains on the table, the best from the point of view of humanity going forward, is that the people who did this were completely indifferent to the suffering of average people. And I mean completely indifferent, like the kind of person who, if they were late for work, wouldn't hesitate to run down other people to get there a few minutes faster, right? That level of indifference. Is that the same thing as desiring to run over other people? It is not. Is the possibility that they wanted to run down other people on the table? Unfortunately, it is. I'm, I'm stunned weakly by revelations of new kinds of harm that we are discovering downstream of this so-called vaccination program. So I'm open to that evidence, but I haven't seen it yet. Mm. So to my way of thinking, the person who is willing to run down innocent citizens walking down the street in order to get to work faster is sufficient menace to be at the top level of alarm and to be open to the possibility that they are indeed worse than that that they uh, are intentionally aiming for people. But until I see the evidence, my feeling is, look, I know what the floor is. The best this could possibly be is a total disaster for the population of planet Earth based on the fact that uh, 
utterly reckless individuals were interested in mandating a highly novel and extremely dangerous technology onto every citizen of the world that they could reach. Yeah, wow, that's, that's that's a five alarm fire right there. You know, I know four alarms is the number is the top <laughs> number, but this goes beyond normal emergency. And uh, so so there you have it. Uh, I'm, you know, at the point I see the evidence that this was intentional, I will shift gears if the evidence is compelling. At the moment, my feeling is, how bad does this need to be before you hold a Nuremberg-like trial and uh, start asking questions of the people who know what this was about? Yeah, I I completely agree. I think I think just what we know in itself without speculation is enough for us to demand some sort of public inquiry um, with criminal consequences for the people involved. 100%. And I would also add, I don't think that people in the public really understand the nature of the crime that is now effectively certain. Again, there are crimes on the table of possibility that go beyond this, but the deliberate blocking of the medical treatment of COVID, in other words, the natural process by which doctors would find sick patients in their office and would start treating them based on their symptoms and that doctors would learn how to treat this disease and would get better at it over time. That process would have rendered the so-called COVID pandemic a non-event. Mm -hmm. The fact is, I believe it is a more dangerous disease than many of my friends in the dissident movement believe, but it is a highly treatable disease and it is not a disease with a high infection fatality rate so if doctors had been allowed to do their job and the public health excuse had not been used to derail them, then we would have had a truly minor event, barely worth noticing, because at the point that you came down with this new disease, whatever it was, you would have immediately been given the wide range of treatments that are so effective at uh, neutralizing the harms of the pathogen. And so imagine, you know, just rerun the last three years with a pharmacopoeia full of useful compounds that can treat literally all but the very oldest and sickest people. This would have been nothing. Instead, they used it to reformulate, reformulate the rules of the world. And yeah. A lot of people died needlessly. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've, this is something I've been thinking about a lot because, you know, I am, as a younger guy, I like to, to entertain conspiracy theory. I mean, conspiracy hypotheses. Um, yeah. thank you. Um, I have been listening. Uh, so, um, <laughs> <one of> the few. <laughs> but as I've gotten older, you know, you become a more practical person, right? You, you realize that, yeah, there are very dark things that happen in our world, but, you know, it's not it's not always some deep state conspiracy to, you know, whatever for whatever end they're they're after. Right. But, you know, I I look at what we've just endured, what, you know, and now is the the dust is beginning to settle. And, you know, you brought up a very good point, I think maybe about a year ago. But in that, you know, if they were actually interested in treating this illness, they did the opposite of everything that they should have done. And literally 
everything they told us to do. Go home. Don't treat it till you're really sick. Don't go for a hike. You know, they, they wanted us indoors when we should have been outdoors. They wanted us doing nothing when we should have been treating early. Um, they wanted us on ventilators when we should have been treated with antibiotics for a bacterial pneumonia. Every single thing they told us to do was the inverse of the right answer. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, for myself, I, I think about stuff like that and I, I think, well, what was, what was the goal then was the goal to get us to a vaccine. And if the goal was to get us to a vaccine, then their plan, knowing what they knew in their trial data was ex extremely short-sighted. I mean, there's an obvious profit motive there, but you know, they had to have known that eventually people were going to start dying. They had to have known that eventually people were going to get injured. And and how were they going to to mitigate whatever bad publicity or press came out of that? And look, at the end of the day, the truth is, is that they can they control most of the mainstream media. But I guess maybe I'm answering my own question here because you alluded to it earlier. They did not factor in the independent voices. They did not factor in the Brett Weinsteins and the, the Pierre Corys of the world, the guys who were willing to stand up and throw it all on the line. And, and, and so I guess, is it, was that the, the monkey wrench in, in, the, in, in the plan? It was. And I think the reason that they didn't anticipate it is also, I would say, fairly clear and pretty interesting which is we have a hard time, let me step back a second. Empathy evolved for a reason. And I use empathy in a very precise way that most people would say, um, sympathy and empathy are terms that have a vague relationship to each other. I, I like to define them very precisely in the following way. Empathy is the ability to understand what somebody else is going to do by running the data of their situation through your own computer and figuring out what you would do in their shoes. Sympathy is empathy plus that person is on my team, so I'm rooting for them to succeed, right? So that's the relationship. Therefore, empathy is a tool that is perfectly useful in understanding your enemies. I'm not trying to uh, help Anthony Fauci by figuring out what he's thinking. I'm trying to anticipate his moves so I can block him, but I do put myself in his shoes. But here's the point. Empathy works best when your computer, the thing in your head, looks like the thing in the other person's head. The more different that other person is from you, the less you will correctly anticipate their reaction to things. So if somebody is a psychopath and you're not, you have a hard time understanding what they're going to do next because you don't understand. They have a kind of liberty you don't. They can do things that would, you know, make it impossible for you to live with yourself, and it doesn't phase them. So you don't properly anticipate it. Now, here's the thing. We are clearly dealing with monsters. And I don't mean monsters who are intentionally doing harm, but as I said before, we are dealing with monsters who are unfazed by the suffering that they cause in other people's homes. They don't care that your child may die in your arms and you may be broken forever over it. It does not cause them to lift their spoon and their breakfast cereal just one iota slower, right? It's just not a thing to them. So when you're up against people who don't look like you, you don't get what they're up to. They also don't get what we're up to. 
So why did they fail to understand that you would have experts who would be willing to lose their careers to say what was true? Why did they fail to understand the world of podcasters who would endure ridicule, be slandered by, you know, celebrities whose music they've been listening to since childhood, right? Why did they fail to anticipate this? Because they don't have the features of character that caused the good folks to do what they did, right? These, we are up against people who lack integrity, who lack the capacity to navigate a reasoned argument that has features that work against them. They didn't anticipate a admittedly small group of experts who had insight and integrity and courage because they don't have those characteristics. And it's amazing to me that that's why they screwed this up. That's why they are now facing a world of people who is at least partly awake to what's been done to them is that they didn't realize that integrity was a real thing. They thought it was like, you know, a posture that you might strike to get laid. Yeah. A, a virtue that you signal essentially. Yeah. Exactly. So, a virtue that you signal. So it, it's a moral defect that was their undoing basically. And isn't that beautiful? I mean, it that, isn't, yeah. doesn't that just go straight to the, uh, the Jordan Peterson uh, view of the world. It does. Where, uh, the monster just simply lacking this feature of character stumbles badly and uh, finds himself, um, you know, facing the ire of a, a public uh, that is righteous. It's yeah, it's, um, you know, and, and while we're on the topic of courage, I want to talk about you a little bit because, <clears throat> excuse me, you're you're a guy who's lost his livelihood twice in the last 10 years. You were a college professor by all, you know, by all accounts, living the good life, you know, doing what you love for a living and teaching young people how to do it. And then uh, you had to leave that role um, because of, I want to talk about that for a second, actually, because, you know, I'm, I'm a student of history. That's, that's what I, I've spent most of my life reading 20th century history and maybe a little bit earlier. So I know quite a bit in that realm. And I saw what resembled the Mao brand of Marxism entering Western culture somewhere around 2010 was where it was Occupy Wall Street, actually, where I really saw that happening. But what woke me all the way up was I was when you were going through what you were going through at Evergreen. And I saw a video of young people walking through the parking lot with what looked like weapons looking for you. And I thought to myself, this is the Red Guard all over again. We're here. We've arrived. And that was the moment where the panic switch went off in my head. Because I don't think, I thought it was incredibly irresponsible of the faculty at that school to not recognize what was happening and put it, put that fire out immediately, immediately. I mean, that is a fire that spreads fast. Um, and had they have gotten a hold of you, who knows what would have happened, right? These are young people without much, much thought of consequences for their actions. Um, I, can we go back to that time and explore that a little bit? Um, because you did a fantastic job talking to these students. I, I saw, I saw all the videos. I was, 
just as enraged as anybody watching you get cornered by a bunch of people screaming, you're a racist in your face. And, you know, and, and it was really just over that day of absence thing. And, and then the Halloween uh, costume email, which I thought was more sensible than anything saying, hey, just wear whatever you want to wear. Like, who cares about what's offensive? Like, it's Halloween. Let's just have fun, right? When you look back on that on that time, do you do you still do you still have the same view that you did on it, say a couple of years ago, or or have have you had have you have you do you have any new insights on on your experience during that period? Yeah, you know, there's a there's a process of just getting wiser with age, especially if you happen to have been in historically important circumstances. That's a that's a position, I had, hesitate to use the word privilege because it's been so polluted, but <laughs> that is a position of privilege to have watched something important from a position that nobody else saw it. That teaches you things. It's a developmental process and it does make you wiser. And there's also the fact that, I mean, I'm still very much of the left. I look at the world and I see I see how we could do better. But I'm also not a numbskull, and I know how dangerous it is to attempt to solve problems. You are very likely to make things worse that you did not anticipate as you run off and try to solve problems. So I am both interested in us being better than we are, but I think properly concerned about the danger of taking something basically functional and ruining it uh, through, you know, unintended consequences. But in any case, I was living as a person of the left embedded in a world where the left had lost its mind. And as much as I'm proud that Heather and I kept our wits about us and didn't lose sight of what the actual liberal left was. We remained in an island of that in a sea of crazy runaway leftism. But, you know, it's funny, Heather and I were talking about this literally yesterday. The, if you, if you imagine what it's like to be a member of I don't know, it's the wrong moment in history to even use this example, but let's say that you were a member of the Mossad and you were going to, uh, you know, you were going to somehow embed yourself into Iranian society and not be detected so that you could learn what the Iranians were up to. You would inevitably have to be so good at the job of concealing what you were that you would be circulating in a milieu where you would be hearing and giving voice to things that were of that culture. And you couldn't help but be affected by the fact that some of the things you were saying were just flat out true. So what I'm telling you is that Heather and I found ourselves weirdly behind enemy lines. We didn't intend to go behind enemy lines. We just intended to go teach biology at a college where biology teaching was needed. But because of the degree to which that environment was co-opted by this cult-like thinking, it didn't cause us to think as members of the cult, but it did cause their thinking to become so normalized around us that it had effects. And, and the longer we are away from it, the clearer it is 
you know, what we were hearing uh, in that environment and what it really meant. As far as the Red Guard, as you called them, that is exactly what was happening. And as the events of the meltdown unfolded, it's exactly what we were thinking. The, the potential for um, fatal violence is absolutely here. The mm -hmm. question is, will the circumstances that unleash it arise, and how can we make sure that those circumstances uh, do not occur? That was really the question. And I don't think the students knew that they had that potential. But I don't think the students really understood what mob violence is and what it looks like, and that this is this is the problem, is that when somebody, you know, if, if in a situation where they have somebody that they've painted as a villain cornered, and they go from shouting and somebody throws a punch because they're just so angry, then the point is, okay, they've just crossed the line, but the mob crossed the line, and even though only one person threw a punch, and then what does the mob do next? That thing escalates so quickly that, yes, it was absolutely uh, on the table, as far as I can tell. And, you know, there's there's one incident above all others from that episode that looms large for me. I was biking to campus. So I think I was actually going to bike through campus to go see my class, which we were going to meet in a public park downtown because it was too dangerous for me down campus at that moment. But as I was going to bike through the campus, which I had to go through to get to town, I spotted a bunch of the protesters from the day before waiting for me at the path through the woods where I would normally have gone through campus. So I diverted, and I didn't go into that path because I didn't know what was going to happen. And I went to the police station by another route, and I found the police locked in their own station at the order of the college president. And I knocked on the door, and they let me in. And I said to the chief, I said, you know, I must be imagining it, but I think I just saw some people waiting for me at the uh, the entrance to the, the farm trail. And she said, I don't think you're imagining it. I can't protect you. I don't want you on campus, and I don't want you on your bicycle anywhere in town. You are not safe. And so the thing that I remember is biking home from that meeting to go get the car to go meet my students. And as I was biking, I was realizing you are being hunted by people with violent potential in your own neighborhood in the United States in 2017. That is a pretty far out scenario to find yourself in. Literally being hunted by people who have decided that you are some kind of villain in your own neighborhood. And it actually caused me to think back. I That year I had been, uh, I had chosen to teach about the mathematician Mandelbrot, the guy who had uh, pioneered, he hadn't invented the concept, but he would pioneered um, uh, fractal mathematics in order to actually address biological puzzles that couldn't be addressed with standard mathematics. Um, and he had described being hunted by the Nazis um, I think the phrase he used was uh, a hunted civilian. And as I was biking back, I was thinking about his words and realizing, well, 
I guess I know where we are in history, but yeah. it's interesting that we are there and that nobody seems to know. Yeah. Well, and I think too, I think our, I think our understanding of history, especially in the West is, is a little bit, well, is skewed and simplistic. Right. And there's a fantastic book. I don't know if you've read it. It's called Hitler's willing executioners. And what it's about is how, so in Nazi Germany, the, the German army, the beginning of the Weimar Republic, the German army are, are given basically guarantees that they're going to stay, that they're, they, they are the shadow government, the, the German army. And um, during Hitler's rise to power, the, the German army becomes the SS. However, there's a code of conduct that exists within that army that predates Hitler, right? And what Hitler discovered um, as his, as, you know, as his, fascism was spreading and and as, and as his uh the fanaticism around a and anti-semitism grew in germany was that although the ss were willing to do horrific horrendous things there were times where they would draw a line they 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 were butchers but they but they actually had a threshold in certain scenarios so a lot of the most horrific things that happened to to um to Jews in in Nazi Germany and in Poland and in and in Ukraine were actually committed by everyday average citizens, people that Hitler had conscripted to carry out the stuff that the SS wouldn't do. And what he did, what he discovered during that process is that people are extremely malleable and susceptible to suggestion, and that. You know, what happened in Nazi Germany was able to happen because Hitler was able to successfully frame the Jewish population as being the scapegoats for the failure of World War I, the economic depression that followed. And as World War II was underway, the, the, uh, as the Allies won victories and got closer to German borders, he was able to frame the Jewish population as being responsible for all those things. And... You know, the German people were more than willing to accept that because it was harder to accept that it was their own military and their own generals that signed the Versailles Treaty that put them in the position that they were in, right? Now, granted, the you know, there's, there's a lot. I mean, the Versailles Treaty in itself is a longer discussion because there's a wrongs and rights on both sides there. But the point is, is that the German people were were the de facto military arm of the Nazis that were willing to do the most brutal, horrific things to the Jewish population. And, you know, I've always, I'm of the left as well. I, I, you know, in my 20, I, I'm still a young guy. I'm 40. So I don't, I haven't had a chance to go fully conservative yet. But um, the reason I abandoned the left is because I have always known that the left has, again, a susceptibility to radicalization because they invite and accept a lot of different ideas. And that is a vulnerability that conservatives don't generally have because conservatism is kind of a more condensed political ideology in a lot of ways. 
And so when I saw this start to change, and again, you know, going back to your situation at Evergreen, I myself abandoned the left and moved more toward the center because I saw what the left was becoming. And now everything that's outside of that radical, uh, that radical leftist cult is considered, you're considered right wing, I'm considered right wing, just because we don't subscribe to, you know, this Maoist neo-Marxism, which couldn't be further from the truth. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I think that the main mistake that we made throughout that entire period and throughout our entire cultural revolution, the one that happened here in the West, was that we downplayed the seriousness of what was unfolding in front of us. And we didn't understand Jordan Peterson's argument against compelled speech when, you know, he's standing on the U University of Toronto campus arguing with a bunch of 18-year-olds. You see, these are children. Right. When you're on your bike and you're arriving at and you're you were absolutely right to go to the police station. I would have been less worried if they were adults, but these are children who don't understand that what they're about to do or you know, or has have, have serious, very serious consequences. And so I don't even know if I have a question there. I think I was just talking, but um, you know, I I yeah, I just think that we we significantly underestimated the susceptibility of our own population to to suggestion, especially during COVID and especially during this, well, it looks like it's tapering off now, but the what Jordan Peterson would would uh, brand as the postmodern neo-Marxist revolution. Do you do you do you see ourselves as still being captured by that ideology or do you see it uh, dying out as well? I don't see it dying out. I see it being jettisoned because the cost of maintaining it is now too high. Too many people are aware of what it is. I will say, Heather and I encountered this ideology in college. That's a long time ago. We're talking about 1991-ish, maybe a little earlier. It was already grotesque. And its potential to do harm was obvious, but its power was much reduced, right? It was isolated to certain departments. It wasn't infused through the entire institution at that point. But I don't think no student of history could have missed that we were dealing with the same style of, of failure, that the tragedies of history were set in motion by viewpoints like this neo-Marxist revolution that started in the academy. So the problem is it's very hard to raise the alarm. And I was actually quite aware of Jordan Peterson before what happened to me at Evergreen. In fact, I had carefully watched his reaction to the people who confronted him. And I had learned something from him before I was a public figure. I'll, I'll tell you what it is. There's the scene where he's outside talking with the students, but then there's the other scene, which I think precedes it, where he's inside the lecture hall where he has been invited to give a talk, and he is being shouted down. Somebody has one of those canned air horns, and so he literally can't say anything that could be heard by this audience. And he's sitting there very calmly looking at them. And what I realized in 
in watching him was he lost utterly in that room, but he won in the real venue, which was the people who would see that video. And so I coined a phrase in my own head, which is the room is not the room. Mm. And when I was confronted, I had the advantage of knowing that the room is not the room. Mm. Now, that's something everybody needs to understand. And people have, I think, caught on a little late. Um, I also remember Peterson in front of, uh, I guess it would have been Canadian Parliament, mm -hmm. talking about compelled speech. And I remember him suggesting that one might be arrested for misgendering somebody. And I remember people regarding that as preposterous. And I remember thinking, no, I wouldn't want to place money on that one because it's possible they're too smart to actually go that far, that they know that they will reveal themselves if they do it. But that sure does sound plausible to me. Mm -hmm. So I, I think part of the game is understanding it is always true that you have people who are way ahead of the curve and that they will inherently look like crackpots. That's the nature of being far enough ahead of the curve that other people don't see why you are where you are. And the hardest job there is analytically is sorting the people who are truly far enough ahead that they look like crackpots from the actual crackpots who outnumber them tremendously. Mm -hmm. If you get good at that, then you will understand history before it arrives. So it really couldn't possibly be a more valuable skill to have in your toolkit. Um, but if you sign up for it and you speak publicly, then you will also be portrayed as a crackpot for taking seriously those who dare say things, you know, before the Overton window allows it. Yeah, I don't know quite quite where we've arrived. Um, no, I, you, you know, I can add to that because, uh, you know, I... I've been warning about things that are on the way for a while. And, you know, while we're on the subject of Hitler, you know, um, Hitler's rise to power was what really paved the way was the, the chaos in the Weimar Republic, right? Because you have a country that had never been a, a, a democratic republic. Kaiser's abdicated. Now we have to <laughs> create a democracy. How do we do that? Right. And, you know, I, I don't know if maybe I think I might be the only one who's ever done this, but I read the original Weimar Republic Constitution. It's a beautiful piece of paper. Yeah. Yeah. I'm probably the only person who's ever done that. Um, but but what it does is it, it it incorporates parts of the American Constitution, the British and the French parliamentary system, and some of Sweden's system. And what they created was this bulletproof democratic republic. In a, on a on a sheet of paper, it's it's beautiful. If you ever if you ever have absolutely nothing to do, if you're on a flight and you want to download a piece of paper to read, read it. Um, but the problem was that that there was so much chaos created by the Weimar Republic. I mean, at, at any given point, there were twenty plus political parties all vying for power in the Reichstag. Nobody had any real idea or plan. So you know, it's kind of 
the the socialists were left to rule over this thing under the thumb of the American or the, the German army, right? Well, Hitler saw that and took advantage of it. And that's how he came to power because what the German people really wanted was a return to authoritarianism, the, the monarchy, because they, they didn't have to take part in their system anymore. Remember, these are people who had never voted, understood what it meant to vote. I'm seeing a similar situation unfold here in the West, both in Canada and the United States. We have a tremendous amount of political upheaval right now. And I'm watching the pendulum swing back toward the right. But my concern is that that pendulum is swinging too far to the right. And people are digging in their heels and looking for conservatives or right-wing candidates who will say the most outlandish things that kind of parallel or align with their own beliefs in response to this neo-Marxist, you know, cultural revolution that we've experienced. Along with that, we've seen a a resurgence in anti-Semitism, surprisingly enough, coming from the left, which myself personally, it doesn't surprise me, but I see, am I correct there? Do you, do you think I'm, I'm maybe Uh... overstating? No, I just think I just think in the, your last statement, I don't know where you were headed, so it's possible you were headed here, but it's not coming from the left. It's coming okay. from multiple directions. One of them is the left. There's okay. a very different anti-Semitism that has been on the rise on the right. And now the interesting thing is the folks on the right detest the neo-Marxists who are anti-semitic on the left they detest them they do not respect them and for good reason um but the fact that they're it's it's effectively the other shoe that has yet to drop and you know increasingly we are seeing it play out in social media where these multiple anti-semitisms are um visible and if you know if you if you're aware i mean there's really three actually i would say the three biggies are the one on the right you've got uh some kind of white nationalist impulse that is anti-semitic on the left you've got the neo-marxist uh version of anti-semitism which is housed most prominently in the universities and then you have the uh islamofascist version which is yet a third right Mm. the white nationalists are not islamofascists and they're not neo-marxists the neo-marxists um would be detested by both of the others Uh, yeah it's three different factions and the point is anti-semitism is the kind of phenomenon that finds itself a focus in many different broken communities Mm. for for evolutionary reasons can, can can you explain the evolutionary reasons? Because this is something I've always wondered. I think so. Um, if you think about what Jews are, Jews are a diaspora. And that means they live as a tiny minority in other places, in other people's countries. And... The problem is that you have a boom and bust cycle economically. When times are good, 
then people collaborate with Jews because Jews, for whatever reason, and I think it's primarily cultural, have some pieces of toolkit that are very useful for innovating, getting stuff done. Uh, and then when times are bad, when economic contraction hits, Jews are a natural target because they do accumulate wealth by virtue of being good at stuff and they can't defend themselves by virtue of being a tiny minority. And so that means that if you're in a growth period, you may think, oh, we've gotten past our anti-Semitism. It's, it's done. It's not a thing anymore. It's a minor phenomenon. And then the growth runs out and suddenly people are looking for who they can target and Jews are a natural. And, you know, I think that's a pattern of history that people have failed to understand. And it is now, let's put it this way, that was a hypothesis of mine in college. Uh, I think it is now more than a hypothesis because mm -hmm. we are watching this unfold and it matches so well the predictions of that hypothesis that I struggle to find a competing explanation that's uh, worth the paper it's printed on. Mm. So, so it's, it's the threat of the outsider, really? No, it's, um, it's facultative partnership. Mm. You know, it, I'm, I'm going to end up finding an in a, incorrect analogy just to simply explain what it is. But if you imagine, imagine the way the body views its various parts. If food is plentiful, the body may want to grow muscle um, because it can be stronger and accomplish more with muscle. Every step that you take in the world costs more because you're carrying around extra muscle. But the body may be willing to pay that price because the advantage of having that muscle is just well worth it. When food becomes scarce, the body will look at that muscle as uh, a hindrance and it will consume it in order to stay alive. Mm. If you imagine that this is economics rather than nutrition, then the point is um, societies like their Jews when there is uh, the opportunity to innovate because Jews are good at it. Um, and then they turn on them when the music stops and there aren't enough chairs. And um, the fact the fact that I knew that intellectually as a college student and now as a middle-aged person, I am watching anti-Semitism arise all around me and I'm listening to the arguments that are being made and it's, you know, it, they're rationalizing violence yet to come. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, I've, you know, I spent a lot of time on X just because that's where this podcast lives for the most part. And, uh, you know, it's where I get a lot of my information from. And I see a lot of these statements being made and I, I, I feel like I'm living in an alternate universe. I'm like, you don't understand what you're saying. Yep. You know, um, you're in a trance. Yeah. Well, I was explaining to somebody the other day, I said, look, from the moment the Jews leave Israel, 
they are pursued and butchered over and over and over again. And so if you hate Zionism, you should hate anti-Semitism because it is anti-Semitism in the pogroms of the late 19th and early 20th centuries that creates Zionism and the drive for Eastern European Jews to return to Israel, right? And the problem I have is that in our society as it is right now, I feel like we have stripped out most of the nuance. And this Israel-Palestine conflict, this is probably the most complicated territorial dispute, I mean, of the last 500 years, but I, I want to say almost human history, right? Because there's no right or wrong answer there. There's no right or wrong answer. Everybody's right for the same reasons and wrong for the same reasons. And so, you know, I'm, I'm looking at all this stuff happening and, and, and you can see it slowly evolving. Now, there's also an added danger. An added danger is that the United States currently has thousands of people pouring through its southern border every day. And a lot of those people are Arabic Muslims who have a deep hatred for Jews in general. And you have a pressure cooker situation where you have a lot of young people who don't understand the nuance, who are out there protesting on behalf of Palestine. And then others who are now in the country who, who have an irrational hatred for a group of people just because it's embedded in them culturally. And, you know, I saw a video of a bunch of Jewish kids locked in a library. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll cut this out, but because I know where that goes, I know where that leads. And I'm, I'm concerned because I feel like we should be able to progress. We should have already progressed beyond that. Right. But it's almost like, and, and maybe you can speak to this as an evolutionary biologist. It's almost like we evolve to a point and then we devolve again. And then we evolve to a point and then we devolve again. Is, is there anything, am I just being crazy here? Is there anything to that? Or do we, are we kind of stuck in this loop where we get to a certain point where it seems like we're past all this bullshit and then we go back again? Well, I, I would just, I'm not even correcting your language. I would just say, I think you'd be better off to describe that not as de-evolving, but as a facultative oscillation between modes. And that is exactly what we are seeing. And you are not wrong that we were past this. What we didn't have was a mechanism for realizing it would be back and that if we want to end that, if never again is to mean anything, then you have to say, oh, it's not that we're now more enlightened than that. It's that the conditions have allowed us to be more enlightened. Right. And when the conditions no longer foster that, it will be back with a vengeance. So I don't know how to do this because I was literally saying to people, not only can it happen here, but it's going to. And the thing that's going to cause it is the growth running out. Mm. That's the thing. And the growth running out turned out to be a more complex pattern than I understood, mm. right? We created phony growth for a very long time by effectively check kiting. Right. But now it's become obvious that you know, there are way too few chairs and the music is coming to an end. And some of the people had advanced warning that the music was coming to an end. So they're already sitting in the chairs. 
And the, um, the answer is yes, we are headed to a very predictable rerun of the historical tragedies. And we do have a choice, but that, that choice involves everybody stepping out of the track that their particular perspective has them on, right? Mm. Everybody, I mean, this is it, the conflict in the Middle East is driving me insane because I understand the arguments from the positions that these people are in. And the point is, look, if you continue with the same arguments, you will end up in the same place. Mm. Now, if there's no alternative, if the point is, hey, the realists are just recognizing that there is no alternative but to continue this cycle or continue the cycle until one of the parties is gone, which is what I'm afraid is happening here, um, then okay, then that's just realism. But the point is, no, I think I know better. I mm -hmm. think there is an alternative. And I think that alternative is actually something that members of each population have tapped into, but they are being sidelined by those who wish to return us to the historical process, in some cases, just cynically because they sell weapons and, you know, this conflict is, uh, you know, good for business. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how, it's the same topic that we were talking about before. It's looking at Jordan Peterson saying they're going to put people in jail for misgendering um, and I won't go along with any of this and thinking, you know, is this, is this a crazy person mm -hmm. or are they trying to tell me something I can't hear yet? right? Same thing in this case. There is a different way to view this conflict. But that different way involves having to carve out a space in which we can discuss what's actually taking place, which is evolutionary, Yeah, frankly, right? To the extent that we say, well, you know, what are we supposed to do about the Middle East? Which side are you on? And we don't mention evolution. We don't talk about lineage, right? We talk about who did what to whom we are incapable of putting the correct puzzle pieces on the table so that we can figure out how to arrange them so that this is no longer a problem 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now. And it's tragic, but um, we, are, we are living in a wisdom drought, mm. right? Yes. The people who have wisdom is tiny and they're all on the sidelines at best. They're talking on social media. They don't have real power. Yeah. And, you know, the, the part that really bothers me is that a lot of the people who are truly wise are choosing not to speak for fear of their own, for fear of what may come of it, you know, as, as it relates to them. Um, yeah. And I apologize for getting emotional. The reason, the reason why this one hits me hard is because my mom, my mother is Plains Cree Indian and I'm Métis technically, we call it in Canada, which is a mixture of Indian and, and French. Um, and throughout my life, I don't look Indian. So I've actually been able to exist in multiple spaces. You know, I'm a lot of, a lot of people have never really been able to guess what racial makeup I am, but, but there have been instances in my life where, you know, somebody will introduce me and say, and somebody say, Oh, you look unique. Where, where, what's your background? And somebody say, Oh, he's Indian, but he's one of the good ones, you know? <laughs> wow. And yeah. And, 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 and it's, it's when it comes out of their mouth, it's like they don't recognize what they're saying, right? 
but all of the deepest the deepest scars that I have all came from scenarios like that. So, you know, I I look at you know this this anti-Semitism that seems to you know exist as an undercurrent beneath every society, and you know what it must what it must you know, well not what it must what it feels like to have attributes about you that you can't change and an ancestry that you're born into but yet it somehow ultimately becomes a reason for people to hate you or to to shut to shut you down or to to, to throw you away right and so I know I know we're running out of time here so I just want to talk about one last one last uh, subject I want to talk about the World Economic Forum because this is one that I've been exploring quite a bit lately I read the Great Reset you know a couple of months after it came out it was the worst read of my life it's like a it's a hundred page you know corporate brochure for fascism I, I, I it's a it's a book that I would normally read in an afternoon and took me three months because it, it just killed me to read it it was brain numbing but I've had this thought lately and I want to run this one by you and you can tell me what you think of it um I think that the World Economic Forum is a front organization, and I think they're a front organization for a bunch of different groups, but I think one of those groups is the Chinese Communist Party. And the reason I think that is because what we've experienced here in North America, the top two-thirds at least, is, uh, is, is basically the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward. But what the elites, or the elites what the people behind the levers of power did was they realized that Mao made a mistake in the order in which he introduced these concepts Mao's great leap forward he introduced that first and by the time he had that ended he had largely starved to death most of the Chinese people and the people who weren't dead were starving to death and so when the cultural revolution was introduced it was effective but it ultimately failed because the people were so the, the, the general human consciousness was so weakened that it just would not accept the brainwashing. And what, I see, what I've seen happen in the West is a reversal of those, is that we, our cultural revolution occurred first, and we are about to enter into a great leap forward under the cover of climate change. At least that's, that's the way I perceive it. Um, I want, I guess I want to ask you, do, have you put any thought into this, into China's involvement with the World Economic Forum, with the World Health Organization? And, and if you think what my, my hypothesis, what you think of my hypothesis? Uh, I think your hypothesis is excellent. I haven't heard it anywhere and I haven't thought it in that way at all. What I have thought in parallel is that we are permanently back on our heels because it's very hard to get your mind to stop thinking in terms of nations and political parties and you know the familiar entities that circulate in the world and adjust the way power is wielded those things are, are now more misleading than they are informative so what i've looked at is the democratic party of which i guess i'm still formally a member <laughs> I am the world's most reluctant Democrat. <laughs> but the the problem is I look at the Democratic Party, and in particular, I look at the DNC, and I see it as an utterly mercenary, authoritarian organization that has not only no patriotism to it, but if anything, I detect the opposite. There's an antipathy to the structures that make the U.S. a special place. 
mm-hmm. right? The things that make us great are galling to the DNC and it is constantly working to unhook them. Now, I don't mean to let the, the Republicans off the hook. I have long despised the Republican Party. But the Democratic Party's collapse into monstrousness is more personal to me because I once upon a time believed in these people. <laughs> and where this gets back to your hypothesis is much of what we do makes no sense from the point of view of advancing our national interests or even adjusting the nation in direction of some set of beliefs and principles that the blue team holds. It looks like we have just simply been sold to the highest bidder with no restrictions on who is allowed into the room. In other words, to the extent that Pfizer can bid on the right to parasitize the American public, so too can the Chinese Communist Party, because really it's just a question of who's willing to spend more in order to adjust American policy. Surely our enemies have noticed that we have a completely corruptible political structure and that to the extent that they want to hurt us, the expensive, difficult, and dangerous way to do that is to send an army to fight us, right? The obvious bargain is to just get us to hurt ourselves by buying influence over our uh, our government and causing the government to instigate it. So I do see, um, obviously, I don't know what goes on in these conversations. I don't know who's present. I have yet to hear anybody tell me why our enemies abroad would not have bought influence over this system. I don't see some set of prosecutions where they've attempted to buy influence and have been discovered. So either I'm to believe they just didn't think of it, didn't try it. What am I to believe? There's no plausible story in which our enemies didn't decide to, you know, even if they had to build corporations in order to shield the fact that they were actually buying influence in order to get us to harm ourselves, it would be the obvious move. And I hear no discussion of it. So my sense is, if I look at the Democratic Party, and I think, oh, yes, these are a group of Americans who believe we should, you know, be very concerned about climate change, and uh, that, you know, abortion uh, should be allowed up until the moment of birth or whatever the collection of beliefs that Democrats are supposed to hold are, it doesn't map very well. But if I imagine, oh, this is a collection of uh, interests hostile to the rights of Americans who have come together because of their shared desire to push that entity in uh, the direction of American self-harm, that makes a lot of sense. That would explain what's going on on the southern border. It would explain the, uh, you know, the subservience to the COVID tyranny. It would explain. It would explain virtually everything. Mm-hmm. So, is the DNC the WEF? No. In fact, I don't really know that either of them are meaningful organizations. Probably, it would be smarter for the real organizations uh, to remain obscure 
and for us to have a cartoon villain in Klaus Schwab to imagine he's pulling the strings and stroking a white cat or whatever we're supposed to think about him so that, you know, if it comes time for uh, torches and pitchforks, we go after the phony rather than whoever it is that's actually setting our course. So I think there's a lot to your hypothesis. I really like it, and it maps pretty well on what I know. I don't think it's the only such entity, and I, what I hope, A, I hope you will um, be careful about moving politically. You've described yourself as moving to the center, and I, I think going to the center is cool. We meet yeah. in the center to discuss how we are to, to live, but that doesn't necessarily involve you changing your political position. And the fact that people who are nominally on the same side of a political spectrum as you, as you have lost their minds is immaterial. Mm -hmm. Whatever the right thing for us to do is the right thing. And if you've changed your mind about it, that's one thing. But um, to go back to an earlier point of yours, there is a natural reemergence of conservatism at this moment. And I'm sure you and I would agree that much of that is positive, that we are watching the destruction of many essential features of our civilization and conserving them is essential. Mm -hmm. um, I used essential twice, sorry about that. But no, it's all good. Uh, anyway, <laughs> it's natural for conservatism to be uh, finding its voice at this moment, and it's good. But we can't conserve our way out of the puzzle we're in. Yep. can't be done. And worse, we can't go backwards. Mm -hmm. A reactionary impulse isn't going to work either. Yeah. So what we have to do is take that conservatism, which is uh, right and just and essential, and we have to partner it with the impulse to solve the problems that the structures we inherited do not solve. Dangerous. I agree. The conservatives are right to be frightened of the unintended consequences of solution making, but we don't have a choice. We have problems based on the novel world we live in and the answers are not in any Bible any of us own. Yeah. They're just not in there. So yeah. we have to go forward. We have to not destroy what we've got, but we have to be ready to figure out how to solve problems we don't have the solutions to. And that's not a simple puzzle, but with partnership, it can be done. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in Canada, we're, we're in a very tough spot, obviously. I mean, everybody knows the disaster that is the Trudeau government up here. Um, we are, we have swung all the way to the hard left where, I mean, myself, I'm originally from Vancouver and I moved my family to Alberta last year because of how far left we're, we're swinging. And again, I'm a guy who's from the left. And Nothing about my my values or my principles have changed. I still hold this, the same liberal values that I did years ago. I think what has changed about me is is in recognizing how easily manipulated those principles and values can be, and how easily the people can be when when that manipulation is a pro, uh, when that how easily the people can be manipulated when that manipulation is applied, and so. I've moved back toward the center, just being a little bit more of a moderate, because I don't, I, I just no longer want to be tied to any specific group or any ideology, because I've seen how they've, I've just seen how they've run amok in our culture, right? And, you know, in the United States, you all are fortunate, because you have a very plausible 
candidate right now in Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I think he's the best thing for the United States. I think he's the best thing that's happened to the United States in a very long time. In my opinion, he's the only guy in both Canada and the United States not playing politics. Seeing Canada right now, our only hope in potentially getting out of this mess we're in is in the Conservative Party and Pierre Poliev, who is the leader who I'm not sure, but maybe you've encountered on, on X from time to time. Problem is, is that he's a politician. He plays the game. So you can't trust anything that he says because he's just another cog in that wheel. Whereas, whereas with, with Bobby Kennedy, you get the sense that he's not playing the game, that he truly does have his country in mind, that he's not completely self-serving. And I guess we'll close on that. How do, how do you feel about, uh, about Bobby Kennedy and his prospects of becoming president? Yeah, well, I know him pretty well, and I agree with your analysis. I do not think he's playing politics. In fact, I think he's putting his life on the line for uh, values that he states very clearly. And what's more, I don't know anybody who knows him in person who disagrees with this. He appears to be a completely genuine, I mean, he's a flawed human being, mm -hmm. but uh, he is genuine in what he is pursuing, and I think he's a very honorable person, and I'm very much hoping that uh, he can beat the many hurdles that will be placed in his way to prevent him from getting there. Um, I would go back to one other thing, though. Um, Let's sort out this left-right thing. Okay. I agree with you that the center is an important place, not because the center is where the right answers are. I really just don't believe they are. <laughs> but because what we are faced with is the requirement to find a proper integration of the impulse to conserve what we've accomplished and the impulse to solve the problems that jeopardize it, that the center is the natural place to have that discussion. When I say that I am on the left, obviously I've just said that um, the right is, it, it's their moment to protect the things that we've accomplished. So I'm not deaf to this. Does that make me a conservative? Not really, but you know, I'm not arguing for shut down the impulse to conserve and pursue the impulse to fix and improve. What I'm saying is I'm better at that job. I think you want me on that job. I think you want me looking at problems that we actually face, solutions that might work. And then I think you want me and other people like me gaming them out and figuring where the vulnerabilities are. If we, if we engage in this kind of solution making for this problem that we agree is real, what happens that we will regret later? You want people who are good at that job to plot a course and you also want them to lay out mechanisms that will allow you to see where you've misstepped so that you don't just keep doubling down on a bad policy so you know when it's time to say wait a second what we were hoping to accomplish here is x but what we've really got is y and y is not desirable right this is the wrong solution and we it's time to reverse course and go down this other path so when i say i'm on the left what i'm saying is we have real problems that require solutions for which the answers are not in any book that we've been given. And you want people who are sober and careful about the danger of unintended consequences, people who understand game theory and different levels of analysis. You want those people doing that job. And you want other people 
doing the job of figuring out where all of the Chesterton's fence issues are, all of the wisdom that we've been handed in a form that isn't literal and how it is involved in us navigating life without doing tremendous self-harm. These things are both necessary to navigate the present. And anybody who thinks you can double down on one and dispense with the other is just not seeing the puzzle. That is such a brilliant and simple perspective. Um, because, you know, it's funny, I, I, I always associate right and left with, you know, team sport, right? If you're on the left, you want your team to win, 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 win. And I have labeled myself as being in the middle because of that, of that very principle you just outlined, recognizing who is the best person for the job, putting the person in to do the job, and then you contribute in your way to that job. So who, regardless of who's leading the charge, everybody's doing their part, right? And sometimes it's the left that leads and sometimes it's the right that leads just depending on what the requirements are at the time. And man, I, let's end on that because that is such a, I know, I know you're probably confused as to why I think it's so refreshing, but, I, but it's, it's, it's because we always view this as we have to win. One side has to win this contest. And if you're on the left, you always want the left to win. If you're on the right, you always want the right to win. And we have to let whoever is right for the job do the job at the time. And um, I don't know if I'm doing a good job of explaining this, but... Well, it occurs to me as you're saying it, there's an analogy here. Okay. Let's imagine that we find ourselves in the middle of let's make it the Atlantic uh, in rough seas there's water pouring in through a leak in the hull the ship is dead we don't know where we are what direction to head and how we're going to power our way there first priority is to plug the leak mm -hmm. if we sink nothing else matters so there is an argument for um, this is a ship. It requires the water to be on the outside, right? But imagining that we can solve our problem by keeping the water from flooding in, no, we can't. Actually, we have to figure out how we're going to go in a direction. We have to, have to figure out which direction stands the greatest chance of allowing us to save our lives. And we're going to have to figure out how to go in that direction um, because nobody's coming. So... Mm -hmm. um, I think that's where we are. And uh, let's put it this way. At the moment, because conservatives see their role so clearly, and they are quite accurate in the necessity of them doing their jobs at this moment, it is harder and harder for them to see the value of, uh, I hesitate to use progressivism because it calls to mind a bunch of idiots who don't know anything about how to accomplish anything. Um, but it is easy for conservatives to miss the importance of progressivism at this moment. But I would say at the point that they rediscover it, it is essential that they realize the progressives that they want doing the job that progressives do are progressives that are correctly terrified of the danger of unintended consequences. Right, You don't want anybody else doing that job. Anybody who thinks, oh, I know how to solve this and I'm just going to do it, that is somebody who's putting you in danger in a complex system because nobody predicts these things well. So you have to do this in a way that's extremely careful, that knows that your next step could be on a slippery rock and that you could 
tumble off into the abyss. Mm -hmm. So you have to step very, very carefully. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's where we are. Absolutely. So, okay. One last point. You, Unity 2020 was a brilliant idea. I think America missed a gigantic opportunity with Tulsi Gabbard. Um, we have two candidates in the United States who are effectively, I would call it, consider Trump an independent as well. He's a re- he's on the Republican side, but he's not really a Republican. Yep. Now, I, I don't I don't know exactly how you feel about Trump, but how would you feel about a Trump Kennedy ticket? I know Kennedy's already struck down the idea, but but I I, I personally believe that if you had Trump on on ec- the economy, foreign policy, and you had Kennedy on environment and everything else, I mean, I think that's a winning team. I mean, uh, what what would be your perspective on a scenario like that? Well, I want to step carefully because there are an awful lot of people who are banking on Trump's success to save us. I don't think he's capable of doing it. Um, And, you know, there are lots of negative things you can say about Trump, but what I've just said is not negative. This is a job that is almost impossible to do. And Trump did something remarkable in getting elected. He demonstrated that our system is open to an outsider uh, who can play that game. But the characteristics that made him capable of that, I believe, are pretty close to inconsistent with the characteristics necessary when you get into that office. Hmm. So I'm hesitant about the idea of a Trump-Kennedy ticket because I don't think it's the right ticket to do the job. If I thought it was the right ticket to do the job, I'd embrace it in a heartbeat. That said, you know, obviously, if, you know, you raise this in the context of Unity 2020. If if these two gentlemen had made a deal where they agreed to a power-sharing partnership in which they had to reach consensus between them in order to navigate except in the rare circumstance where they couldn't, then it takes care of a lot of my concerns about anybody, really. You know, if you put any two people who uh, have patriotism to them together, then the point is their their blind spots are going to be much reduced because the one can't see, the other can. So anyway, I'm talking around this, unfortunately. But My real point is I don't think that's the right way to accomplish this. And Mm. it's not to say that I can't imagine that we would find ourselves choosing between that and something else, and I wouldn't choose it. I would. But but we're still early in this process. I think we can do better than that. And, you know, that means, you know, I've, I've said it elsewhere. I don't think Trump is the right guy for the job. I don't know that anybody can do it, but if someone can do it, I believe Bobby Kennedy Jr. is the guy who has the skill set and the ability to put his own interests aside and and all of that. Um, But I'm open to any possibility, and I'm deeply concerned that those who wish to maintain their illegitimately hoarded power 
understand what the threats to them look like, and they're actually very concerned about Kennedy for good reason, because I believe he will do what he's told us he would do in office. I think he's the only one who would govern from pure heart and pure mind. I, I, I truly believe that. I, I, I think he's the only one who has the future of his country in mind. He's the only one. You know, I saw a very good speech from him um, in Memphis. He was, uh, he was at the Libertarian Freedom Fest. And, you know, he's no libertarian. I'm no libertarian. But I was also felt myself very welcome in that environment. And he said, he said something that just simply, he just stated it, right? He said to this audience, he said, you know, there are fates far worse than death. Mm-hmm. And I believe in his heart of hearts, he believes that his life experience uh, has written this into his core, and that that is the reason that he is he is clearly not a political entity in mm-hmm. the normal sense. He is clearly trying to accomplish something that means something to him. He's not trying to win. A political game. That's beautiful. Um, Dr. Weinstein, I would love to talk to you again sometime about solutions. Because I, I think I think we spend you know a lot of time talking about problems and things that we're facing. I, I've heard you present solutions before, and I think some of your solutions are bang on, exactly what we need. And uh, I would love to do this again with you sometime. I'm sorry I cried. I had, I, I had no intention of that happening. Dude, I don't, I don't know why you're sorry you cried. I mean, look, I think, frankly, uh, you know, if it's your, if it's the way you get through life, that might be a problem. Um, but we are facing mighty serious circumstances. And to the extent that a little emotion shows through, I believe you should just let it be, let people see it, and yeah. it will allow them to understand what you are on the inside in a way that they won't if you edit it out. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I, I, uh, it just breaks my heart to see these things, these patterns reemerging, you know, and to see. I just, I just myself, I, I, I despise hate. It's the only thing I despise, and like truly, I hate hate, and and yep. you know, I, I, it just gets me. You know, to see those kids locked in that library and all those people banging on the windows, not they have no idea of the past history, who these children, obviously what their families have gone through. They have no idea. They have no clue. And that's the part I think that makes me most upset. And the reason why I'm doing this podcast and talking to people like yourself, because I just think we need to stop being ignorant. We need to end ignorance. We need to inject nuance back into our discourse. Well, it goes back to what you we're talking about earlier we did know all you need to do is transport some thinking people from i don't know 1990 into 2023 and watch students banging on the door you know uh, because the people inside the library are jews Anybody from 1990 who knew anything about history at all would say, hey, wait a minute, we're going there? Yeah. That's coming back? How can we stop it? That that can't be... Where is that? That's in New York? Really? You know, so 
The problem is people, it's tracks. You're on some track and you don't realize, oh God, I'm in the Milgram experiment. Yeah. I read about the Milgram experiment. I wanted to be the person who told the inter the uh the the person running an experiment to go fuck himself. I'm not shocking anybody for you, right? I wanted to be that person. Why am I the person who says, do I really have to shock him? And then, you know, keeps giving him <laughs> more and more lethal voltages, right? So, all right, if you're doing, if you can look from some person that you once were at what you're now doing and realize, oh my God, I've become exactly the thing that I assured myself I would never be, then stop, hmm. Right. It's that moment. It's the time to stop. Yeah. Uh, totally, man. Totally. It's this man. It's, it's, it's refreshing to listen to you, but even more refreshing to talk to you, Dr. Weinstein. Um, you've brought, you've given me so much to chew on and so much to think about. And I'm going to listen back to this as I'm editing everything down and I'm going to have a million more questions for you. So hopefully we can do this again. That'd be great. Um, I'm, uh, thrilled to discover uh, another person that I know I will be seeing on the front lines. That's awesome. Thank you, sir. All right. Be well. Mm -hmm.